0: And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and you know, the Christian worldview is something we all need to think about. We're going to do that today with David Wheaton. But the Christian worldview is also a radio uh, and online ministry that aims to sharpen the biblical worldview of Christians and share the good news that all people can be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. David Wheaton is the host of that show, and he's joining me today. He's said yes to going through a 12 part series on embracing. A Christian Worldview. We're already to part seven. David, welcome back to the show.
1: So good to be with you again today, Bill.
0: Likewise. I always feel uh, when I get to hang out with my friends and talk about Jesus, it's the happiest (laughs) time of my day.
1: That's a good thing.
0: Yeah. So because we're doing this one month at a time and we're in part seven, maybe we can just go over some of the important points from last time.
1: Yeah, part six, we talked, we got into the formation of a Christian worldview. We'll talk about more of that today, how you form a biblical or Christian worldview. And just for someone who's tuning in today who hasn't been here for the first six, there's really four parts of this whole year-long series we're doing uh, in embracing a Christian worldview. We've already gone over the, the, there's four F's here. So the first one is there's a foundation, to the Christian worldview and that foundation is that God exists and he speaks through us through his word and through the person of Christ and in other ways. The second f is the fundamentals of a Christian worldview and we've talked about this meta narrative this overarching story of scripture and and of history of his story that God created a, a perfect universe and man corrupted it through his sin but God in his goodness and graciousness and mercy is redeeming some out of the corruption that we're in. And then in the future, there'll be a restoration where God creates a a new heavens, a new earth, and justice will be served for those who have believed in Christ versus those who have rejected God's offer of reconciliation. And so last week and then this week, we're talking about that third aspect, which is the formation. How do you, how do you actually form a Christian worldview? We've gotten into some of the basis, the foundation, the fundamentals. How do you how do you form it? How do you get a sharper biblical worldview as you were just talking about? Well, one key thing to keep in mind is, and we've talked about this earlier, but it's worth bringing up again, is that we are who has who or what has influenced us. So you for, your worldview is formed based on the parents you have, maybe teachers who have been influential, friends, perhaps a pastor. Maybe a celebrity that we really look up to, a coach or a mentor in our life has, has shaped the way, way we think and therefore live. Maybe it's a musician or a book. Hopefully it's the Bible. So any of those things can be really uh, influential as to how what forms our, our worldview. So what we read, what we watch, who we listen to, who our friends are, who teaches us. This is what goes into the formation of your worldview. So forming a Christian worldview now, that's different than just a general worldview, forming a Christian worldview is about being influences by sources, by people and the word of God that are consistent with Christ's worldview. Because if you think about it, Bill, what's a Christian worldview? That's just the worldview of Christ. Now, we'll never perfectly think and live like Christ. I'm not trying to say that, but the goal is as a believer is to, to, to think and live more like he did. That is the goal. And so just the one more thing, one other additional thing I'll bring up, uh, as part of review from last week, we talked about some misconceptions because when you bring up the idea of worldview or Christian worldview, one misconception is that this is only accessible for those who are, you know, highly learned or intellectual, the, the deep thinkers among us, you know, like Francis Schaeffer or something. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not the case. Uh, Ephesians, uh, or 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Like the smart people, basically. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And then, so there's this contrast here that's being presented that you can be really smart and intellectual and have many degrees and have many letters after your name but if you don't have a christian worldview really in god's eyes you have the wisdom of the world the the foolishness you're living and thinking according to your own thoughts rather than the wisdom of god you know wisdom is the the skill of thinking and living as god intends that's what wisdom is it's it's understanding life from god's perspective and then living according to the way he intends hmm. so the wisdom that comes from god comes through comes through Humbling ourselves under the authority of God, learning from him, and then having his Holy Spirit enable us to, to live that out in our life. Now, I'll just mention quickly the other two misconceptions, that the Christian worldview is simply about ac- accumulating facts or acquiring knowledge about God or the Bible. Like if you really just kind of learn intellectually what's going on, then that will, you'll have a Christian worldview, purely thinking a certain way. Well, that's not the case. The Bible says even the demons believe in Jesus. They know facts about God, but there's no willingness to act on those facts to obey God. So having a Christian worldview is about forming it. It is about understanding certain things, but it always leads formation will always result in function. It'll always be lived out. And uh, so that was the second one. And the third misconception very briefly is that a Christian worldview is not about a political viewpoint. If you're conservative politically or you're liberal politically. You know, a lot of times people on one side of the aisle or the other will pull things into their political worldview, you know, from a religious or Christian aspect, and then they think they have a Christian worldview. No, which cable channel you watch at night and keep up with the news at night does not determine that you have a Christian worldview. A Christian worldview comes from having Jesus Christ as the source and the center of the way you think and live.
0: It's like the guy who writes five books about swimming, but then falls in the water and drowns because That's although right. he wrote books about it, he never did it.
1: That's a very good point. You, yeah, you have, to, you have to form it. You have to have the knowledge, yes. You don't have to have all the knowledge, but you have to have some knowledge about it, of course. But it is about living it out. It's about tr- your heart being transformed. So the desires of your heart want to, to love and obey and follow and worship God.
0: All right, I love that we're in Part 7. David Wheaton is my guest, and we're embracing a Christian worldview. And in Part 7 today, we're going to really dig deep as to how a Christian worldview is formed. This is exciting to me, David. This is uh, what I love talking about more than anything.
1: Yeah, well, this is an extremely important question. How is a Christian worldview yes. formed? Uh, I, mean, I think this may be one of the more important conversations we're going to have today. And I'm going to give away the ending right here at the beginning by giving the the three points, which I think are helpful to consider. Uh, The Christian worldview is formed three ways, and it is accessible. It's important for people to understand that it's accessible to anyone and everyone. Okay. If, number one, you're saved. In other words, you've been reconciled or made right or born again. That's a critical prerequisite to having a Christian or biblical worldview. You must be saved. Number two. And we'll go into that one today. Number two, you must be sanctified. Uh, and that means you, you must be, that. That's the, that's the present tense of the Christian life. The, the Saved is the, the past tense. That's a point in time that you're justified at a point in time. Before that, you were a non-believer. You repented and believed in Christ. All of a sudden, you became a born-again Christian. That's a point in time you've been saved from the penalty of sin. But the rest of your life, you know, it's, like, it's almost like your, your wedding day versus the rest of your life. Your, your wedding day is almost like the day you were justified, but there's a lot of marriage ahead of you now. You have the rest of your life. And that's the same thing with the Christian life. You've been saved. Well, now you are being saved or you're being sanctified. You're set apart. That's what that word means for God's use. So that this is your growth in the faith, that you're being you're being saved from the power of sin in your life. And then finally... There's a third tense to salvation, and that's the glorification that you where you will be saved from the presence of sin someday. So the three ways to form a Christian worldview are: be saved, being sanctified, and then I'll, that's the third S there for the one we won't get into it today, but we'll get into it next time. It's surrounded, and when you're surrounded by those in a local body with other strong believers and hearing the word preached and so forth, that is the third way to develop a Christian worldview.
0: Excellent, David. I appreciate that. I'm going to throw out a, a riddle because this is only one I think mm-hmm. you can solve. Are you ready for this? Yes. <laughs> I have to say this carefully. All possessors are professors, but not professors are possessors.
1: Yes. Good riddle. All possessors are professors, all? but not, not all professors are Possessors, Yes. That's like a tongue brain twister there. But let me try to answer that by just quoting what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter seven. Listeners will be able to figure it out. Jesus said this, not everyone who says to me or professes to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say or profess to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will, Jesus said, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And I've heard some pastors say this is the scariest passage in all of scripture because it's very possible to be a professing Christian a professor, but actually not possess genuine saving faith. And so that's why it's, you can run, You can be fooling and deceiving yourself, Jesus is saying. And so this is part of that first aspect of, of forming a Christian worldview, that we must be genuinely saved, or the Bible of Jesus said, you must be born again in John chapter three. Some people call it conversion. You must be regenerated, born anew. In other words, you cannot form a real Christian worldview without being saved, without being born again. And there's just a very interesting passage, uh, another passage in Scripture that describes the difference between being religious but not regenerated. Hmm. Uh, The the, the passage in John chapter 3, I think probably most of your listeners have, have heard this passage between the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus, who was he? He was an elite religious leader of his day. He was part of the Sanhedrin, the the ruling religious body of of the Jews. Mm -hmm. I mean, this man was learned. He was erudite. He purportedly had a biblical worldview because after all, he'd been trained in everything to do with the Old Testament and Judaism, but he couldn't even understand the spiritual truth that Jesus was telling him when he came to Jesus by night. So Nicodemus is a perfect example of being a professing, he wasn't a professing Christian, but being someone who professed to have religion, but he wasn't regenerated. And it's so interesting in that passage as John 3 starts out. it says, "Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night." because he didn't want to, you know, alter his reputation because Jesus was an outcast. They didn't like him. He was upsetting their religious order. So he came by night, probably not be noticed. And he says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. He's not even asking a question, Bill. He's just, he's making a statement, but there's kind of a question behind it. Like, who are you? Yeah, I'm trying to, he's curious. And so he's drawn to Jesus and Jesus doesn't confirm or deny Nicodemus' statement, but he immediately goes, very interesting, he tells Nicodemus how he can be saved, how he can be right with God and have spiritual perception, how you can know who I am, Jesus says in verse three, he says, Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus, I won't read the rest of it, listeners can read it from themselves in John 3, but he just couldn't understand what it meant to be born again. He had no spiritual perception. He couldn't have a truly Christian worldview because he hadn't been regenerated. He hadn't been given the Holy Spirit, which God gives us at the point of justification to be able to understand spiritual things in Scripture so that we can then put them into practice in in our lives. So regeneration or being born again or being saved, whatever you want to call it, is the prerequisite for a Christian worldview. It's the all-important gift that God gives us to help us, to guide us, to help us, to teach us, to influence us through his Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, if you haven't been saved, you're not going to have a sound understanding of Scripture. You're not going to have the indwelling power to live for God's glory. You're just going to misinterpret Scripture. You're going to be confused, frustrated, defeated. You must be
0: born again, as Jesus said. All right, we'll take a break. We'll be right back with David Wheaton. We're talking about embracing a Christian worldview. Giveaway. I don't know if if that's three words or three syllables. I'm not sure it matters. What really matters is we are giving away 100 copies of Susie Larson's new book, Closer Than Your Next Breath. Where is God when you need him most? If you have ever wondered about hearing the voice of God or is feeling good the same as feeling God, is is there anything I can do when God seems silent? All of that is covered in Susie's new book. And if you want to get in on the drawing, you can enter to win your copy now. You can do it at myfaithradio.com. Thanks for listening to the podcast and supporting Faith Radio. I'm back with my friend David Wheaton. And David, I got to say that that little riddle we had in the first segment was challenging. So I'm going to throw an easier one out for you. What's the difference between grandma's cooking and... And an all-you-can-eat restaurant. Wow. Yeah. I'm not sure I know the answer to that, Bill. At an all-you-can-eat restaurant, you decide when you're full. That's very good. (laughs) I like it. Because at Grandma's house, she decides when you're full.
1: Oh, yeah. You brought back memories of my grandmother, (laughs) my godly grandmother, the first believer in her family who made the best brownies. (laughs) still remember them to this day.
0: And she kept feeding them to you, didn't she? Yeah. yeah, my
1: brother Mark kept eating them.
0: Yeah, oh, that I believe. All <laughs> right, let's talk about the most important question that anyone can ask is how can someone be saved?
1: Well, this is the most important question in all of life, and that's really a big statement. What's the most important issue or question in life? Yep. Well, the most important question in life is not even who you marry or what job you're going to do or, or anything else you can possibly think of. The most important question has to do with the next life, really. Uh, is how can I, as a, as a sinner, because we're all born sinners, how can I, as a sinner be made right with the Holy God and be forgiven of my sin and inherit eternal life with him rather than suffering his, his punishment in hell, which the Bible describes in many places. That is the most important. How can I, as a sinner, be made right with the Holy God? And interestingly enough, that's, that question is answered all over scripture because it is the most important question. And so this first aspect of a Christian worldview, that you must be saved to have a Christian worldview, well, you have to answer, and you must believe in the correct answer to this question. You remember in Acts chapter 16, Bill, where Paul and Silas are, are jailed in the town of Philippi, mm-hmm. and there's an earthquake in the middle of the night, and the, and the, the doors of the jail are opened up, and, and the jailer wakes up and, and all of a sudden figures, uh-oh. All the prisoners are going to be gone. And if the prisoners are gone, I'm responsible for that. I'm going to be executed. When he comes in, brings a light in, he realized that no one's left. They're all still there. They didn't escape. And his first thing he says is, remember what it was, Bill? He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Mm -hmm. Now, why would he ask that? Well, he would ask that because he had seen Paul in Silas, he had heard them singing, he probably had heard them explain the gospel to their fellow jail uh, uh, prisoners, and he knew something was very different about them. He could He was listening and watching. And so his first question was, when he had almost thought he was going to lose his own life, it was just, what, what, what must I do to be saved?" The implication is, "I'm lost. What can I do to be saved? That's what, you know that's what the implication is of what, what must I do to be saved is. And what did they say? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's a very simple uh, response. It's Mm -hmm. not, you know, do this, do that, read these 10 issues and go there and wash your, it wasn't that, it was believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Listen to what Jesus said in that same passage we talked about earlier in John chapter three and verse 16, the most well-known verse in all of scripture, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. One more verse, John three thirty six. he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So, Bill, what word are you seeing repeating over and over here is the word believe. Mm -hmm. Believe in who Jesus Christ is, that he's the perfect, sinless Son of God, and you believe not only who he is, but what he did when he was here that he lived a perfect life. He offered himself on the cross. He died a bloody death on that cross to pay the blood penalty, the death penalty actually, that God requires for our rebellion against him. He paid the penalty for us so that God's wrath and justice could be satisfied over our sin. And God accounted our sin to Christ and then accounted Christ's righteousness to us so that God could see us as completely forgiven and holy and welcome us into heaven someday. So how is one saved? What Jesus said. The first thing he said in ministry, repent and believe in the gospel. Turn, agree with God that you're a sinner. Turn from it because the wages of sin is death. And then believe in who Jesus Christ is and what he did for you. And when you do that, God promises, not only will you not be disappointed or be put to shame, but you'll be saved and there will be evidence in your life Mm -hmm. that he is your Lord. There will be ongoing obedience. You should become baptized afterwards. The baptism doesn't save you. That's the outward proclamation of what's taken place on the inside. You now believe in Christ alone, in his righteousness, his act on your behalf rather than any righteousness that you perceive to have yourself
0: yeah david it's more than just an intellectual assent it's Absolutely. you're giving your allegiance to him you're trusting in him, you're relying on him, but you are believing it's just not an intellectual thought
1: that that's so important. I'm so glad you said that it's not just yeah, I believe that Jesus died for my sin no it it's yeah, you believe that for sure, but he be- he is your lord as well you 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 don't trust in anything that you can offer as being right with God. Because ultimately, if you believe in anything you've done as, as, as helping you be right with God, let's say you were baptized as a baby, you went to confirmation, or you take communion at church, or you give to charity, or you raised your hand. If you're thinking any of those things contribute to your salvation, to your justification, what are you really saying? That Christ's work on the cross wasn't quite enough, and I need to add something to it. That, that's offensive, actually. Because Christ's work on the cross was fully sufficient to, again, to satisfy God's wrath and his justice over our sins. So you trust only and fully in who Christ is and what he did for
0: you. All right, David, let's talk about that second step, sanctification. How, what, how do we do this Christian formation, this worldview, when it comes to sanctification?
1: Yeah, I can see we don't have tons of time left no, today, so let, let's, let's just touch on it a little bit, because this is a very important aspect, uh, part of, of forming a Christian worldview. So as we talked about earlier, the, the three tenses to salvation, you've talked about the first one already, being saved is the justification, you've been saved from the penalty of sin. Well, the rest of your Christian life is about this second tense, the present tense, sanctification, where you are being saved from the power of sin. And this is a lifelong journey that the Christian is on, to, to grow into more Christ-likeness. Romans 8.28 says uh, that we that for whom God foreknew, he also called to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. What that's basically saying is that the goal of the Christian life is to become more like Christ. Mm-hmm. And so, or in Philippians chapter 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That doesn't say work for your salvation, it's work out your salvation. That's that this present tense of sanctification. So this is the process that God works in us to make us holy during our our lives, as long as we're alive uh, alive during our earthly life, to set us apart for Uh, his service. And we'll talk more about it next
0: time. Sounds good, David. Thank you so much. We'll do it next time. Looking forward to it, Bill. Well, We'll take a break. When we come back, Dr. Michael J. Rhodes is going to join us. He's written a book called Just Discipleship, Biblical Justice in an Unjust World. That's next. Welcome to the show, especially if you just tuned in. I just had a wonderful discussion with David Wheaton on embracing a biblical worldview. You're going to want to catch that if you missed it. You know, today there's so many Christians and churches that are rediscovering that God really cares deeply about justice, but opinions are kind of all over the map as to what an approach to biblical justice might look like today in today's world. And what exactly does the Bible mean by justice? Fortunately, Dr. Michael Rhodes has written a book called Just Discipleship, Biblical Justice in an Unjust World. And he's going to talk to us about that today. He's a lecturer in Old Testament at Cary Baptist College. He's the author of of many books and lives in Auckland, New Zealand with his wife and four kiddos. And according to the time difference, I think he just recently finished breakfast. Michael, what would you have for breakfast?
2: I don't eat breakfast. Bill, <laughs> oh, but I'm so disappointed! disappointed. <laughs> they say that's the most important meal of the day. So, well, I, I must be
0: missing something. Well, that's okay. <laughs> it, it's about eight thirty your time or so the next that's day. That's right. That's right. All yeah. right. So, welcome to your Thursday, and <laughs> nice to have you on the show. Uh, very, yes. very interesting topic because biblical uh, justice is something I don't know if we really understand well.
2: Hmm. Mm. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's. That was part of my desire. You know, I, I grew up in a church that loved the Bible, and because I loved the Bible, I got more interested in justice work and and particularly related to people who are struggling with poverty. Um, and that drove me to want to know more about what the Bible said. And, and in many ways, the result is this book. So, yeah, I think Scripture has a lot to say about justice, but we've not always heard it particularly clearly or particularly well.
0: Yeah, wh- where are we getting? Where are we going wrong about justice today?
2: Well, you know, first of all, I think we miss in the biblical story that it's central. So, you know, as soon as we find out that God is calling a people in Genesis 12 with Abraham, we learn that God is calling the family of e- Abraham to be a blessing to others. You know, okay. God's blessed them, they'll be a blessing to all the nations. But what we often miss is that in chapter 18, God unpacks that call a little bit more and says, I've chosen Abraham. So that he will teach his family to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that I'll bring about all that I have promised him. So in other words, the righteous and just character of God's people is one way we serve as a vehicle of blessing to all the families and nations and places of the earth. And of course, that's a big part of the biblical story. And Jesus stands in the center of that story. Which is why in Matthew, when Matthew looks at what Jesus is doing, he says, ah, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. There'd be a servant, he would bring justice to victory, and in him the nations would put their hope. So I think we miss that justice is central, but I also think we often miss what justice is. Um, justice can sound very abstract, it can very sound very legal. You know, we often think of like blind lady sure. justice scales, you know, courtrooms, that kind of stuff. And there's some good stuff and all that, you know. And we also think about, often think about justice in terms of, of judgment, which which is also not totally wrong. um, But that leaves us wondering what is justice and why actually do God's people want it, you know? Yes. And so a text that, that means a lot to me is is from Job because Job is a guy that God says is more God-fearing, God-honoring than anyone on earth at the time. And in Job 29, 12 through 17, Job tells us that he clothed himself in justice and righteousness. So I think it's a really good passage for asking the question, what does justice do? And when Job is clothed with justice, what he does is rescue the poor who cried out for help and the fatherless who had no helper. He accompanies the dying. He causes the widow's heart to sing eyes for the blind, feet for the lame. He goes to court with the outsider. He rescues the uh victims and smashes the fangs of the unrighteous and makes them drop their prey from their teeth. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's what justice and righteousness looks like wow. up in the world. You know, in Job's day. and Job's saying and you kind of go, oh no wonder we might want that. You know, <laughs> no wonder might, you know, <laughs> right. You know? So so I, I those are some of the things that I think you know where where we get wrong off to the wrong foot right out of the gate
0: sometimes. Mm-hmm. Dr. Michael Rhodes is my guest. His book is Just Discipleship, Biblical Justice in an Unjust World. I think the big question that this book addresses is, uh, what does Scripture say about how the people of God become just disciples? Because that's what we Mm. want. We want to become just disciples.
2: Yes. Yeah, that's right. So, um, you know, if you think about Job rescuing the widow, causing her heart, going to court, et cetera. John Goldingay says that justice and righteousness is about the faithful exercise of power in community. And I think that fits pretty well with what we see in Job. So one discipleship question, if discipleship is about our journey as people saved by faith in through Jesus, but discipleship is about our journey of becoming more and more like Jesus, more and more who we were designed to be, then part of our discipleship ought to be shaping us to become people who do justice and righteousness in part by faithfully exercising power and community, and especially on behalf of all those people who Job interacts with, you know, the orphans, the widows, the immigrants, the outsider, the poor, the victims. And so that's really the question the book is asking. And so, you know, in the book, I look at the way, for instance, biblical feasts create communities where, you know, vulnerable widows and immigrants and outsiders become family members. And Ooh, that say more about
0: that. family.
2: Yeah, so in Deuteronomy, when you tithe, uh, Deuteronomy fourteen says, "When you when you tithe, bring your tithe and eat it in my presence." In other <laughs> words, the tithe is going to be the menu for this big feast with God, and God says very explicitly, "You can put whatever you want on the menu." But you have to feast by household. And in Deuteronomy, the household is always including the orphan, the refugee, the widow, um, the landless Levite, and the poor. So the idea is God wants worship to bring people together in joy with him and alongside the vulnerable. So in the Bible, uh, one way you faithfully exercise power on behalf of those who are struggling is by becoming family together. And, and you can see this connection in Deuteronomy because Deuteronomy 14.22 tells you about becoming family at the feast. And then Deuteronomy 14.27 talks about storing up food to provide emergency food aid for the poor. And then Deuteronomy 15 talks about lending without interest and debt forgiveness to create an economy that works better for all. So you can see how, um, The faithful exercise of power by becoming family at the meal shapes the people to faithfully exercise power by set aside food for the hungry and by working for a more just set of economic practices in their world. So that would be one way we see just discipleship happening in Deuteronomy. Mm -hmm. Um, Another practice I look at uh, is, is worship uh, in dialogue with the Psalms. You know, if you if you go to the Psalms and you look for justice, it's everywhere. You know, you prick the Psalter and it bleeds justice. It, these Psalms give us words to celebrate God, to praise God for being just. Um, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne, O Lord, the psalmist celebrates. Uh, these Psalms give us songs and prayers to commit ourselves to justice, right? To say, O Lord, I will walk in your way. And the Psalms give us um, prayers and scripts to lament to God, to protest to God, to plead with God uh, in the face of injustice. So all the many Psalms that say, where are you, God? Why are you? When will you hurry up, show up kind of prayers and Psalms, which are everywhere in the in the Psalm book. Many of them are about praying to God to intervene justly into situations of injustice. And so, in that chapter, I'm looking at that the way the Psalms work is, as scripts that God gives us to shape our life with Him, and in doing so, shape us for the work of justice. And then I compare uh, that theme in the Psalter to the way we sing. And so, if you look at some of the top Christian contemporary worship songs that are sung in the Western, speak, in the English speaking world, you discover justice is hardly anywhere, and the poor are basically completely absent. And when we sing, we don't really ask God to do anything, much less ask him to intervene on behalf of the poor and the sojourner and the widow. So those would be two examples of the kind of practices of just discipleship I'm discovering in Scripture and seeking to share with God's people so that we might join the Spirit in becoming just disciples under the reign of Jesus in our world.
0: Michael, when you were talking about the justice... Coming off the pages in the Psalter, I was mindful of Psalm one hundred three, verse six: "The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed." Mm, or yes, that's just such a comforting verse. Yes, yes,
2: and 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 I think the Psalms give us words that you know. Um, Augustine said, "The one who pray, who sings prays twice." You know, these texts are meant to be sung. They're meant to be getting down deep into our bones. And I often say to people, you know, if you wrote a praise song um, we, to God, we would learn what you think is great about God. <laughs> so because true. God co-authored the Psalms, mm-hmm. the Psalms tell us what God thinks is great about God. And one of the main <laughs> things that God thinks is great about God is that he does righteousness and justice for all the oppressed, just as you said.
0: I love that. I love that. In your book in chapter eight, you do kind of a deep dive on the year of Jubilee in Leviticus 25. Would you talk about that?
2: Yes. So I love the Jubilee um, text. It's my fourth child is a little girl named Jubilee. So this is one that's close to my heart. But basically um, the Jubilee is this law that God gives his people that where basically says in my society and economy, I want everybody to have access to a family farm. You know, I want everyone to be able to sit under their own vine and fig tree to use the language of Micah, because in an agrarian economy, the way you have a place to stand, the way you have a portion of steward, the way you can bring a plate to that Deuteronomy feast is you have access to a farm. So God says, I'm going to give every household a farm. And then in the year of Jubilee, God says, uh, people are going to lose their farms. They may lose them through their own incompetence. They may lose them through some kind of disaster that's not their fault. They may lose them through injustice, but people are going to lose their farms. Every 50 years, anybody who's lost a family farm gets to to come back to it gets to regain their family farm. So it's like, it's like a giant reset button. Mm -hmm. Um, And I talked about the year of Jubilee, Robbie Holt. And I talked about the year of Jubilee a lot in our book, practicing the King's economy about economic discipleship. But in this book, I was specifically thinking about the year of Jubilee in relationship to the contemporary question about reparations for black Americans. Um, which is a conversation that's picking up speed in the U.S. in some sections, but is still deeply unpopular, not least among evangelical Christians. And part of the discovery that I made in, in wrestling with this text is just the point that because the average life expectancy of an Israelite farmer is something like 30 or 40 years, often farms that would be lost in one generation would have to be returned in the next generation. And so it would fall to the responsibility in some situations of successive generations to repair the damage that had occurred in the previous generation. And I just think that insight might help us um, explore whether contemporary Christians might consider our own uh, invitation and perhaps even obligation to work to repair damage that was done Uh, by previous generations in our own lifetimes.
0: Mm -hmm. Dr. Michael J. Rhodes is my guest. His book is called Just Discipleship, Biblical Justice in an Unjust World. And that's what we're talking about today is biblical justice. If you have a question or a comment, the text line is open for you. 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Michael and I will be back in just a minute. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. I'm back with Dr. Michael Rhodes. He's sitting, I think, at his home And it's Thursday morning in Auckland, New Zealand, where he lives. We're talking today about his book, Just Discipleship, Biblical Justice in an Unjust World. And we were mentioning in the first segment, Michael, about Job. I'd love to get back to Job's uh, faithful exercise of power and what that was like. And um, I know there's a great uh, chapter in your book on this.
2: Yeah, so Job, I mean, one remarkable thing about Job, like we talked about earlier, is just that he gets this commendation from God, of being a God-fearer, you know, more than anyone on earth. And then we see sort of justice and righteousness at work in the world through his, you know, orphan-adopting, widow-defending, court-advocating mm-hmm. kind of practice you know um, and it's it's really powerful and and later on in job, job kind of has this famous oath and he talks about how he's committed to the fact that he hasn't mistreated any of his workers, he even the land he's treated justly, you know And so some people call that kind of like like almost like the the Sermon on the Mount of the Old Testament. Um, but what's really interesting is that job starts out thinking about justice from a powerful perspective. Because he is powerful and wealthy. And so for him, the faithful exercise of power is about using that power. Mm -hmm. Um, And and then he loses all of that. And that's part of what he's lamenting throughout the course of the book. And God does not uh, condemn Job for his angry lament. In fact, he commends Job. Job spoke well of God, it says at the end of the book. But when God shows up to Job, he doesn't, you know, um, he doesn't tear Job down for lamenting or protesting. But what he does do is give Job a bigger view of the world. He takes Job on this kind of round the cosmos tour, you know, from the deeps of the sea, the stars and their courses, to the wild places of the world to these wild animals that contribute nothing to human life and these wild places that God takes care of. And I think part of what's going on here is that God is de-centering Job. And so what's interesting is to think about how Job, at the very end of the book, practices justice in a new way, I think in a deeper way, having been decentered on this round-the-world journey. So Job is used to being the host at the table, but when we hear that Job uh, is, re- God restores his fortunes, the very next thing we hear is that part of the way God restores his fortunes is that all who knew Job previously come and have a meal with him. And they even bring a gift, you know, a bit of gold to share with Job. And so Job, who's used to being the host, is now uh, the beneficiary. He's the guest. He's gone from being sort of the one-way giver to the giver and receiver. You know, he's gone from having people depend on him to being interdependent on others. And what's remarkable is Job has been saying all along he treated the orphan and the widow and the immigrant as kin. And so this language of all who knew him previously, if we take that seriously, that means that vulnerable people, too, are now helping to host Job and his suffering. So you get something really beautiful about the interdependence. And that apparently changes Job, which you can see in two ways. At the end of the book, um, Job's possessions are doubled by God. And it gives, in the text, an exact... Uh, doubling everything is doubled except for one aspect of what Job had before is now gone, and that is there are no more slaves in Job's house. And Hmm. so it appears, and I got this from my friend Phil Thomas, that Job, uh, who thought that he was doing well by treating his uh, debt slaves, or maybe they were actual full slaves well at the beginning of the book by the end of the book, it appears that he 's eliminated slavery from his house altogether and the other countercultural thing do- that job does explicitly at the end of the book is he gives an inheritance to his daughters, which is completely unusual in the in the ancient world to give an inheritance to daughters when you have living sons so I think what you 're seeing is that job's difficult journey with God has Decentered him, has taught him the virtues of interdependence, and that has actually deepened his practice of Job. So he's going further into uh, his faithful exercise of power in relationship to workers and in relationship to um, his daughters, which I think is a, a pretty powerful uh, a bit
0: of the Bible that we, we don't often pick up on. That's so interesting. Dr. Michael Rhodes is my guest. His book is Just Discipleship, Biblical Justice in an Unjust World. Michael, how does God respond to his people when they, when they have justice failures?
2: Oh, yeah, that's a great question. Um, and, you know, I think the big story of the Bible is that God in the Old Testament entrusts humanity with his job description of faithfully exercising power as his image bearers in the world, and they rebel. And so God calls Israel... Um, to be the the vehicle of God's blessing, to sort of be a stand-in for humanity on behalf of humanity, and they're called to live out God's just and righteous way as God's image bearers. And like all humanity, they finally fully, uh, and they fail to fully practice that justice and righteousness. So like Isaiah 5, you've got this place where God's saying, my vineyard is the house of Israel, but it's produced... Uh, when I went looking for the fruit of justice and righteousness, I found injustice and unrighteousness. So the the Old Testament has this question, what's God going to do about humanity and his people's failures? And the good news of the gospel is that where Israel proves finally to be faithless, God comes as the faithful Israelite. And so Jesus fulfills Israel's Um, calling and mission, which is humanity's calling and mission, he's the one who brings justice to victory. He's the one who exercises power fully faithfully in community, healing the sick, driving out demons, welcoming the poor and socially marginalized. And he's the one who brings justice to victory um, by dying on the cross as a victim of injustice to justify uh, the unjust right? And so Jesus brings this justice story to a climax. But I think often we end there. Mm -hmm. And so the story can read like God gave people this great job description. They failed. Jesus fulfilled it to get us off the hook. And the story of the Bible is that God did not come to get us off the hook. God came to restore us to our identity and job description. Uh, God came to put us back on the hook. And that's why (laughs) the just one, the risen Lord Jesus when he meets with his disciples he breathes the spirit on them and he says as the father sends me so send I you. And so so the what theologians call sanctification we have been justified by God in Jesus. The journey of sanctification is becoming who we are in Jesus. And the New Testament shows that that has a lot to do with the faithful exercise of power. It has to do with loving your neighbor. It has to do with loving your enemy. It has to do with sharing generously, you know. Um, It has to do with, uh, Paul talks about in, in Romans 5 and 6, offering your bodies as instruments of righteousness. And... Um, as anybody who's looked at Greek knows the 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 Greek word in the New Testament that we translate righteousness is related to the English words both righteousness and justice. And so what Paul's saying there is offer your bodies as instruments as 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 uh, weapons would be another word there um, of righteousness and justice. Uh, As part of our living as citizens of Jesus' kingdom, empowered by the Spirit. So God's response to our injustice is forgiveness, is uh, liberation from our sin, and the gift of the Spirit to help us walk in newness of life, including by faithfully exercising power in community as Jesus' redeemed people. um, And that is by doing justice and righteousness, by being just disciples. Mm hmm.
0: Michael, when because I think there's confusion about justice that we hear today and true biblical justice, can you mm-hmm. think of an example? And I don't mean to put pressure on you with a couple of minutes left, but of something that's being presented as justice when you're looking at it going, "Eh, that's not biblical justice.
2: Yeah, I think that um, biblical justice is always about, and and I've, I've been focusing on the faithful exercise of power and community. In fact, biblical justice is actually bigger than that. I mean, justice and righteousness includes our individual characters, and it includes just systems and structures so we read about just marketplaces and just rulers and just judges which point to kind of the systems and the structures that can be just or in just, just laws so justice is a huge concept in the bible and that's one reason why we struggle to get our minds around it um i think sometimes um uh We get caught up because we lose sight of the fact that that when Christians are thinking, how do we pursue justice? I think the question we should be asking is, how do we use the gifts and power and responsibility that we've been given by God on behalf of those who are suffering, on behalf of those who are vulnerable, on behalf of those who are exploited? And I think we should focus. uh, I think I think we focus there and that will help us get further down the track. When sometimes Christians left and right, um, politically speaking, try to hyper distinguish between justice and say mercy. Um, but in the Bible, the faithful exercise of power is often merciful. You know, um, uh, John Levinson, the Jewish scholar, talks about justice and righteousness. Being mercy in action, um, or you know, uh, in our own day, a philosopher like Cornel West he, he says famously, "Justice is what love looks like in public," and I think that's right. And so, I think sometimes we get tied up in knots: you know, is this justice, or is it mercy, or is it? Mm-hmm. And I think the, the Bible is helping us to see where are people suffering. How do we faithfully exercise power on their behalf?
0: Michael, so, no, so nice to meet you and thank you for coming on. And so because you're in New Zealand and it's Thursday morning, are you? what kind of weather do you have today? Are you going to have sunscreen? Do you need it? Uh, it's a beautiful day
2: in New Zealand this morning in Auckland. But, um, you know, every Aucklander will tell you within five minutes that Auckland gets four seasons in a day. <laughs> so there's no knowing knowing uh, which way the wind will be blowing I by the it. afternoon. Thank right you. now, it's
0: beautiful. <laughs> have, have a great rest of the day, Michael. Nice to meet you. Thank you so much, Bill. It's a back. real real pleasure to have this Thank conversation. You. Michael Rhodes has been my guest. His book is Just Discipleship, Biblical Justice in an Unjust World. After a short break, Jared Stevens is going to join me. We're going to focus on Psalm 46. Be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.